Acts chapter 13. I just want to say I appreciate you guys as a church. Uh, I appreciate your responsiveness, your kindness. I don't know. Just felt like saying that. Uh, The title of the sermon is To Be Deserted. We're just going to look at one verse this morning. Verse 13, reading and working from the NIV. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. We're kind of in the middle of a story, so if you weren't here last week, I don't know, is what it is. But it says in verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions, who were Barnabas and John Mark, sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning, the opportunity to hear it, to receive it, to explore it. I thank you for the privilege and the tremendous responsibility of teaching it. I pray that you would make me a faithful servant this morning by grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would make us a faithful church this morning. And Lord, where we, um, with this issue and this topic present in the text, carry our own wounds, we ask for healing this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a sympathetic high priest who knows how we feel and you care deeply and you teach us to move forward and you heal us. We ask that you do that work in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, yesterday was a beautiful day and so my family and I did what you ought to do on a day like yesterday. We went to the beach all day long, right? With some dear friends, the Summers family, we went and spent the entire day at the beach. It was a beautiful day. There were little waves. Thank you, Jesus. It's been a hard season for waves. There was little waves, and it was just, you know, the temperature was perfect, and this is the best time of year, right? Like, September into October is the best time of year in the coastlands, like, best time of year. So, this is beach time. Make sure you go to the beach a lot. That's very important. As I was leaving the beach, uh, I encountered a lady from our church. And she said, oh, Pastor Britt, hi. And I said, hi. And she said, hey, we're getting a band together. And, right, so like, it took me a minute too. That's a reference from last week's sermon, right, where we were talking about Paul and Barnabas and John Mark as this missionary band and we talked about it as a church, like we got to get, we got to get the band together, right? We got to get bands together and do, you know, fulfill God's call on us. So it took me a minute too. She's like, oh, we're getting a band together. I'm like, <laughs> I think what threw me off too is I'm not used to people referencing something substantive from one of my sermons. <laughs> That's very rare. It's usually about some silly illustration that just came to me in the moment. Like, I can't tell you how many people in this last week asked me, did the chicken come home? (laughs) Like almost everyone I saw from the church this week literally was concerned about the chicken that Fifi let out from last week's illustration. So I'm very caught off guard when someone comes with like an actual point from the sermon. Now, that has nothing to do with anything. 
But for the last couple of weeks, we've been sort of diving into and talking around this idea of divine calling. That's the reference to the band, right? This idea of divine calling. And we're looking at, in Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch here. And the church in Antioch was a Hatman church. It was a great church. The gospel took root here. This church was birth. Um, God's doing stuff here. The Christians are first called Christians. The believers are first called Christians in Antioch. And they are practicing Christian practices that Jesus taught them. And because they're doing that, they're experiencing the moving of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is calling people out on mission. So we'll get a little bit of that review from a couple weeks ago. While they, the church in Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting Christian practices, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So the Spirit had called Paul and Barnabas together out of this worship gathering of the church. And then very soon after, they added someone to the band, right? You remember from the next verse, verse 5, when they arrived at, we call that place Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, who is John Mark, not John the Apostle, John Mark was with them as their helper. So as we said last week, they got the band together. Here's three friends forming a missionary band. They all play different instruments, so to speak. They all have different parts, right? Like Paul's the theologian, church planner. Barnabas is the encourager, speaks into your life, hugs you, comforts you, rubs your back. And John is the helper, and John does really important things so that they can do those things. All parts necessary, all parts equally important. They got the band together, and now, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, they went on a 17-city tour. They went to the island of Cyprus. And you remember from last week, they went from one end of the island to the other. And ancient Cyprus had 17 cities. So they went on a 17-city tour with the band. And I'm sure like any band touring together, they had all sorts of experiences. We saw some last week. They had some real highs, right? Like the governor, the proconsul got saved. And he becomes the first civic leader to be, to be saved in the New Testament that we know of. They had some real hard stuff, right? There was direct demonic opposition. This Jewish sorcerer that we saw last week who was working against what they were doing. And certainly they had an adventure together. And through these experiences, a divine call, adventuring together, mission, opposition, the fruit of it all, the hard work of it, would come to these guys deep connection. There's just no question about that. They would form deep connection through these shared experiences. That's the way that life works. Deep connection. They were engaging in real Christian fellowship. Now, we generally call fellowship anytime Christians have coffee present and they're together. That's normally how we define fellowship, right? Like, go out there and you have some coffee and we're standing around and it's fellowship. But that's not really what the word intends. The word actually denotes some mutual investment in a shared aim. Fellowship denotes that idea. Mutual investment in a shared aim. In other words, we all have this thing that is central to us and we all together are heading toward it and investing in it. We are in fellowship. Do you see that? 
It's not just Christians being in the room together. It's not just Christian food or Christian coffee. It's the shared aim who is Jesus and his mission and his purposes and mutual investment in it. Like we're in this thing together. We're all playing a part. We're in the band. We're heading in the same direction. So they were having real Christian fellowship. And so developing real deep connections with one another. And we all know that the deepest connections in life often come through adversity, right? Through hard things. That's why soldiers are friends for so many years and respect each other. It doesn't come through uh, successes. Like if, if the deepest bonds came through successes, then the Beatles never would have broken up. Right, But the deepest bonds we see come from experiencing and enduring adversity together. And so because of what these guys experienced together, because of what they are committed to, and the way that they would have become connected, this verse in front of us that we put on the screen again denotes some real pain and sadness. When it says... There in Pamphylia, which is modern-day Turkey, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. The band broke up. John left the band. John left them, and he went back to Jerusalem. Now, in a moment, we'll look ahead in a couple chapters. It'll represent a couple years' time span. And we'll see that Paul understood this breaking up of the band, this departure of John Mark, that he understood it as desertion. He understood it as John Mark deserted us in this thing and not something else. They had had these deep shared experiences, victories, opposition, adventure, hardships, successes, and John walked away from it and from them. Now, have you ever felt deserted by somebody? I think it's part of the human experience. We all know the feeling of being deserted. Of course you understand that. We've all felt that. Maybe there's been someone in your life who should have stuck with you, but didn't stick with you. It may have even been someone as central as your mother or your father. Or just a friend or whatever it might be. Someone who should have stuck with you but didn't. And when we think about those things, we realize that the deeper the shared experiences we had with them, the deeper the relational commitment, the deeper the mutual investment and in whatever had brought us together, the deeper the pain when they left, when we felt deserted. And I think that for us, for people, feelings of desertion are hard to sort through. I think it touches some some pretty deep stuff. So it could be hard to sort through. And the idea of desertion is important because it gets right down to, it really touches in a unique way some sacred Christian beliefs. It really touches and pushes us right up against the theological idea of whom is truly always with us and will never desert us. And it really pushes us into the theological and practical ground of things like forgiveness and reconciliation. 
So it can be hard to sort through, but it really touches deep theological issues and practices. But again, it's difficult. I I find in my own life that feeling deserted challenges my willingness to trust people. Anybody understand that? It gets harder to trust people when we feel that we've been deserted by people. And when that happens, we, we begin to live small and closed as opposed to big and open, right? We, we tighten up the borders a bit. We fortify the walls a bit. We begin to live small and closed around our own hearts to protect ourselves because that feeling of desertion was so real and so profound and so destructive perhaps in our lives that we, it's hard to trust and we start to live small and closed. I have found. And it seems to me, and I'll show you why in a moment, that Paul, too, struggled with trust after the desertion of John Mark. So let's go ahead and look down the road a couple of chapters in a couple of years in Acts 15. You can turn to it, but we'll put it on the screen. Acts 15, 36 through 38. Sometime later... Okay, now this is after that whole first missionary trip was completed. This is sometime quite a ways down the road. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Pause right there. Again, the first missionary trip is over. Some other stuff has happened. The council at Jerusalem, quite a bit of time has lapsed. And Paul says, hey, Barnabas, this would be cool. Let's have a comeback tour, so to speak. Let's, let's go to all those cities that we want to, where we preach the gospel and we establish churches, and let's check on everybody. Right? Paul's a pretty good pastor here. Let's see how everyone's doing. Let's get the band back together. And let's go again to those places. Good idea, Paul. Now, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and did not continue with them in the work. See that right there? Paul and Barnabas, really tight compadres, co-workers, friends in the book of Acts at this point. Paul says, let's go do this thing. Let's go visit these churches and encourage them. Yeah, well, let's take John Mark with us. Man, He's part of the original band. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I don't think that's wise because he abandoned us when we were in the middle of this thing. So it's clear here how John Mark's departure was viewed by the rest, at least by the Apostle Paul. That it was very real for him. That Paul isn't willing to extend trust to John Mark, again, even sometime down the road. It's clear that from his perspective, this was desertion and that it had some deep reverberating effects for Paul. Now, to be fair, because I don't necessarily want to villainize John Mark, we don't know why John Mark left. We don't know. You know, people have their reasons. 
It's hard for us to understand sometimes. Uh, he may have had some fair reasons. They may have had some philosophical disagreements, theological disagreements about the way that the mission was going to the Gentiles, so on and so forth. There may have been leadership disagreements there. He might have had some family obligations that caused him to go. He might, you know, we don't really know exactly what it was. Maybe the opposition that they were experiencing was too much for him. He said, dude, I'm not down for this gig anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the band. We don't know what it was. We're not told. But we do know what it felt like from Paul's perspective. It felt like being deserted. And whatever the reason was for John Mark, it left a mark for Paul. Paul is unwilling to trust him at this point, even this far down the road. So much so that Paul is willing to lose another relationship in his unwillingness to trust John Mark. Look what the next verse says. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. This is a sad verse. This desertion so affected Paul, he was absolutely unwilling, could not bring himself to the place of trusting John Mark again to the point where he's willing to lose Barnabas over it. The band is decimated now. You're not just replacing the drummer and moving on. Like, it's over. They parted ways. And Paul, like, doesn't want anything to do with John Mark. Barnabas goes with John Mark. I think it's fair to ask the question, what was Paul trying to protect here when he said, I don't think it's wise to take John Mark with us because he deserted us. What's he trying to protect? Was he trying to protect the ministry and its integrity? He didn't want that to happen again. He wanted a full band to go on tour. Or was it something more? Was Paul trying to protect his heart? I don't know. We're speculating at this point. But if I know anything about human nature, I would guess that it has something to do with the protection of his heart. I mean, he's even willing to lose his relationship with Barnabas over this thing. And I think it highlights this fact, and I think we all realize that when we begin to function from places of pain, when something is left a mark that is so profound, a wound that is so deep, and we begin to live out of this thing, so fear and distrust, whatever it is, when we feel deserted in that way and we start to live out of the painful place of that desertion, relationships get messy quickly. I mean, that's a bit, that was like a, a quick thing, like Barnabas, let's go on a world tour together to like, I'm out of here, we're broken up. When we begin to function out of these places of pain, we say and do things that we would not do when we had a cooler head and a heart that was at ease. And we throw away relationships that we should actually hold on to tightly. Is anybody with me? And these things, these moments and spaces of desertion, stuff like them, they really do leave a mark. They really do hurt. And they really serve to discourage us. 
And it was clearly a very hard thing for Paul. Now, this comes with the human territory. It's part of the human experience. We're, we're going to experience this. But I think also in some unique way, it might be part of the Christian experience. Remember last week we talked about how opposition comes with the territory. Like if you're going to get in the game of Christian mission, you're going to take some hits. That's all there is to it. Opposition, confrontation with evil, comes with the territory of being a disciple of Jesus. And maybe some of these things do as well. It's not as though the difficulties only come to the church from without. Here we see them coming from within. In really close relationships. Last week I characterized Paul in sort of a tongue-in-cheek way as the cold theologian, theologian church planter. You know, Barnabas was the encourager, the snuggle guy, and Paul was like, drop the hammer guy. And that's partially true, but that's, that's, that's only two-dimensional. There's obviously more Paul to Paul than that. When we look at the New Testament, we actually see that Paul was deeply tender and that he valued companionship. Read his letters to Timothy sometime soon. They're very tender. He says things to Timothy like, Timothy, you are my true son. He says to Timothy in one place in the New Testament, you know, Timothy, I don't have anybody like you. He's concerned about his health, his stomach aches, his ministry, all sorts of things. He's very tender toward him. Think about his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. He says to them, you know, I cared for you guys like a nursing mother because I loved you so much. Verbatim, that's what he said. That's how he felt toward them. He was very tender. He really valued companionship. You guys are like kids to me. I feel like a nursing mom to you guys. And then a few sentences later, he says, I treated you guys like a father treats his own kids. I think this tenderness is seen again at the end of Paul's life. And there at the end of his life, we see him lamenting, sad about the times that he's been deserted. So in a moment, we'll go to 2 Timothy, which is the very end of Paul's life. This is the last stuff that we have from Paul. Again, he's writing to his true son, Timothy. So these are the thoughts of a man at the end, which are very telling. And so he says this in 2 Timothy. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. And Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. He says in verse 16. And in my first defense, his defense before civic leader, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. This was a real thing for Paul. He's, it's on his mind at the end of his life. He's talking about to someone whom he loved deeply and really trusted, Timmy, about these feelings of being deserted and nobody being with him. 
And maybe you have those too. And I just want to say they're, they're real. Maybe you haven't gotten to that place in life yet, and God bless you. May the Lord come soon and you go to heaven and you never experience that. But for those that have, evidenced by the Apostle Paul, these feelings can be a big deal. They can actually leave a mark. And so I want to provide some hope here. Here's hope. By simply reminding us of this fact, that Jesus knew what it was to be deserted, abandoned, and betrayed by his very best friends. Jesus knew what it was to be deserted, abandoned, and betrayed. I want us to go back in our minds to that night before Jesus was crucified. He's just had the last supper with the disciples. He'll reveal there that one of them was going to betray him who had been his disciple for some three and a half years, Judas. And then they leave the Last Supper and they take this little half a mile walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, this conversation unfolds. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. Peter said to him, and of course it's Peter, even if Everyone else deserts you. I never will. Jesus replied, I'm telling you the truth, Pete. This very night before the rooster crows, even twice, you'll deny three times that you even know me. No! Peter declared emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. And then as we skip ahead in the story, about 20 verses, it says, Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. And the story continues. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, You must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man, Jesus, that you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, he'll deny three times that you even know me. And Peter broke down and wept. Now, if we could speak about Jesus in, 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 in this sort of way, that was the hardest night of his life. The night before the cross, when he faced the cross and would be arrested. And and at the hardest moment in his life, all of the people that were the closest to him left him. He was all alone. And maybe that teaches us something about human nature. Maybe that teaches us something about Christian territory as well. Maybe if it happened to Jesus, we're supposed to learn that this in some way, because of the nature of what this thing is, comes with a territory that we're going to experience some of this difficulty even within the body of Christ. But what it for sure teaches us is this comforting and hopeful fact that Jesus knows. This is important. Jesus knows. 
It's important that Jesus experience things that we experience. This is part of the incarnation. He came to do those very things. Jesus knows the pain, the reality, the mark of being deserted by those who should have stuck with him. And so in light of what Jesus experienced on this earth in, this, in human form then, the New Testament tells us that he becomes to us like a sympathetic high priest. High priest, direct connection to God, sympathetic, one who is empathetic, understands, steps into our places of pain. I mean, the Bible says this verbatim in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Right? He's experienced the hard things that we've experienced, but he never sinned. So therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's why I think this is important. When we go through something of great magnitude, we want to be able to go to someone else who gets it. There's some real validity in that. I don't enjoy the fact that as someone who has lost a young child, my wife and I are often go-to people for those who lose children. I don't enjoy that. I don't appreciate that. I don't look forward to that, but I understand that. We want to be able to go to someone who understands the pain of what we're going through. This is telling us that Jesus understands the pain of desertion, of abandonment, of betrayal. And this is an invitation to go to Jesus. What that teaches us is that we ought to go to Jesus with these things. That we got to, we must go to Jesus with these things. This is an invitation to go to Jesus. He understands, sympathetic, empathetic. He wants us to come to him. Now here's why that's important. It's not merely that he can sympathize with us and comfort us as he does. But he actually helps us in some real tangible ways. I want us to go on our minds now to the day of the resurrection. It's pre-dawn hours. The women are going to the tomb expecting to see Jesus dead there. And we see this happen. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel, that's who it was, said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you before. The last thing that we heard about the disciples is that they all deserted Jesus. The last word we heard from Peter was, may God curse me if I'm lying. I don't even know the guy. And the first thing that we hear from Jesus through the angel is, 
Make sure those disciples and Peter know that I'm still with them. And so that's great comfort to us who very much see ourselves in the disciples and Peter. But that's also instruction to us. Let me just put it in really blunt terms. This teaches us not to hold grudges. Anybody here good at holding grudges? Jimmy, really? Bro, I got a PhD. Rob, you too? I'm Dr. Merrick to you when it comes holding grudges. I got a PhD on the thing. Jesus is instructing us that that's not the way we live as Christians. Jesus is instructing us through his own experience of being deserted and abandoned and betrayed about forgiveness and reconciliation. This is what Jesus did with those who deserted him at his greatest time of need. Hey, make sure you tell the boys and don't forget Pete because I know Pete's tripping right now. Make sure Pete knows I'm going to meet him at that old place we used to hang out, the Sea of Galilee. And Paul knew this, right? Paul's, he knows about Jesus. Paul knew that Jesus taught us about not holding grudges, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. And the good news to report about Paul is that somewhere along the line, he found the grace to forgive John Mark. It took him some time. He wasn't willing to do it in Acts 15. But somewhere down the road, with the help of Jesus, Paul found the grace to forgive John Mark. Again, that Timothy passage with a little bit added in that we omitted before. Do your best to come to me, Demas, uh, because Demas, who loved this world, deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, he's gone. Titus, he's gone. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you because he's helpful to me in the ministry. Those are good words right there. That's the same John Mark that deserted him. The same one that he said, I I don't want anything to do with the dude. Now at the end of his life, he tells Timothy, hey, bring John Mark. Somewhere along the line, Paul did what we all need to do. Find grace to forgive with the help of Jesus. And because he forgave, he saw John Mark differently now. He said, John Mark is useful. In Acts chapter 15, he never would have said that. He said, Barnabas, if you want to bring John Mark, then this is the end of the road for us. He is good for nothing. Now he says, bring John Mark. It's helpful. John Mark is restored to that place of doing what he first did in Acts chapter 13. On the first tour of the band, he was helping. This is a beautiful picture of reconciliation and grace. And I just wonder if Paul, who is under house arrest at this time and has spent a lot of time in prison, at the end of his life, I wonder if Paul has spent enough time in prison that he doesn't want to be imprisoned by forgiveness, unforgiveness, excuse me, anymore. Imprisoned by unforgiveness. Do you remember when Jesus told the story about the unforgiving servant? Told this parable about what the kingdom of God is like. He said there was a king 
And this one guy owed him like a million bucks, right? A lot of money. And the king was like going to collect his debts. This was from Matthew chapter 18. And the servant begged, please pardon me from this debt. And the king forgave the man. It was a huge debt. And then the servant goes free and he finds this other servant who owes him like a few thousand bucks, a much smaller debt. And that servant says the same thing. Please have mercy on me. Forgive me. Free me from this debt. And he says, I will not do it. He's just choking the guy. And then some of the other servants go report back to the king and say, dude, this guy that you forgave like a million bucks, he's choking this guy out that owes him some measly little amount here. And the king is incensed. And he goes and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all of this and you could not forgive your fellow servant this much? And it says in the story, he threw him in prison to be tortured. And then Jesus finishes the story by saying this, and so will your heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. Now, we're too theologically educated to think that that means somehow we go to hell if we don't forgive and that we're going to lose our salvation. That's not what Jesus is teaching there. I do believe that Jesus is teaching this, that if we refuse to forgive, having been forgiven so much by God, if we then refuse to forgive each other, we will, and God will see to it, we will live in tormented imprisonment. That's what unforgiveness is. It tortures us. It imprisons us. What we think we're doing is imprisoning and torturing someone else. But that's not the way it works. We ourselves become the tormented and the imprisoned in our unforgiveness and our bitterness. And Jesus loves us too much to let us live that way. And so even in something as succinct as the Lord's prayer, he instructs us to forgive as we've been forgiven. And I wonder if Paul has spent enough time in a physical prison that at the end of his life when he says, bring John Mark with you, he doesn't want to live in that prison anymore of unforgiveness. I think that Jesus wants to set us free today. And Paul also knew this, and this is where we end. Sometimes at the end of the day, you just got to land where he landed with this. Back to that passage of 2 Timothy 4. Picking it up where we left off. At my first offense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this lifetime, we're going to experience betrayal and desertion and abandonment. As Christians, we are called to forgive and so experience freedom and healing. But we also have to know 
that Jesus is the only one who ever promised to be with us forever. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. And Paul testifies at the end of his life, dude, everyone left me, but not Jesus. Jesus was right there with me. And Jesus delivered me. And Jesus is here with you today, Christian. He's present in your deepest places of pain. In your greatest disappointments. He's present in those places. And he wants to free us today from the ungodly, unchristian practice of unforgiveness, grudges, and bitterness. Do business with Jesus today. Do business with Jesus today. Come and take communion and remember the cross and remember the debt that we've been forgiven. And then may the Holy Spirit empower you to forgive others the small debts they have against us and we have against them. We've been forgiven so much. May we extend that. God, help us to extend that forgiveness to others. And then come forward and and ask the prayer team to pray for you for healing. You know, if you've got some real marks that you're carrying like the Apostle Paul, you need healing. You have a sympathetic high priest who issued the invitation, come to the throne of grace that you may receive help in the time of need. Come to Jesus today. Stop going to the other places that you go with that bitterness and bring it to Jesus today. He's the only one who can heal. He's all powerful. Bring it to him, confess it, call it out, lay it on the ground, leave it at the prayer altar. Jesus is here today. He loves you. He wants to set us free. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. We pray now, Lord, that you would work powerfully in our midst. You know what we need. And you know how to meet us and minister to us. So we trust you to do that now, Lord, as we intentionally pursue you for these things.